Welcome to OCDQ Radio, a podcast from OCDQ Blog. Obsessive Compulsive Data Quality. OCDQ Radio is a vendor neutral podcast about data quality and its related disciplines, including data governance, master data management, and business intelligence. OCDQ Radio is produced and hosted by Jim Harris, the blogger in chief at Obsessive Compulsive Data Quality. OCDQblog.com. On this episode of OCDQ Radio, I am joined by a special guest. Clarence Hempfield has over 17 years of experience in the high-tech industry with extensive experience in product management, product marketing, sales, and communications. He is currently the Director of Global Product Strategy for Pitney Bowes Software, where he leads global product strategy for enterprise location intelligence. Clarence Hempfield has spent the majority of his career in data-intensive domains, which include location intelligence, data management, predictive analytics, and document management. He is an active blogger who has been published in trade journals and is presented at numerous industry events. Clarence Hempfield holds BAs in political science and economics and an MBA. He also is a certified information management professional and a certified industry analyst relations professional. Clarence Hempfield, welcome to OCDQ Radio. Thank you very much, Jim. I'm glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you here because in this episode, we're going spatial. Spatial data quality. Before we dive into spatial data quality, Let's clarify what we mean by spatial data. Clarence, can you provide us with an overview of the basic types of spatial data? At the most basic level, three basic types, points, lines, and polygons. And you'll find different variations of each of those. Points, you can think of them as the coordinates that represent maybe an ATM or the rooftop of somebody's home or the current location that individual is standing in. Lines can be representative of things like streets and streams or other forms of lines. And then polygons, I guess the easiest way to think of it, particularly in, in most business contexts, is it could be a state or a county or a building footprint. There are many different types of polygons that are represented in reality. Let's start with points. common application of points is postal address, so a point on a map where a customer might live or a point on a map where a store might be located. Is that a good example of the point type of spatial data? Absolutely. You can definitely use that information to represent a point. And the quickest way to get there, of course, is to use technologies that most listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with, taking an address through some geocoding technology and converting that to a coordinate pair. Or it, more recently today, you have people who are using social media applications to check in. When they submit their status update or check in, we'll take the coordinates from a GPS or some kind of Wi-Fi device through the process of reverse geocoding, so convert that from the coordinate pair to an address representing the point that they're currently standing in. In the data that I'm usually working with, using some type of postal validation software to make sure that a delivery point address for a customer is valid. So if we're shipping, say, a product to a customer's home, we want to make sure that we have a valid postal address to ship to that location. 
Orange, that point address was the billing address for that particular customer that had to be valid for sending them a bill. In many ways, the number of use cases that are still out in the market today haven't progressed in ways beyond that. But I think over at least the last 10 years or so, it may be part of the whole mobile revolution. We're starting to get a little bit more concerned about what surrounds those points in terms of what might be located near the point that a customer might be at. Absolutely. Many of us have, through our mobile devices, our smartphones, have grown really accustomed to being able to use applications like Around Me to find various points of interest around where you're presently located. So what we've found is businesses have tried to increase the number of applications that they provide to their consumers as well as to their employees that require what I would call fairly basic spatial searches in order to find various points of interest around that individual. So to your point, whether it's you're looking for an ATM that might be on your bank's network that's in close proximity to you, or you're traveling in your vehicle and you have a device or a built-in solution that, as is giving you the driving directions from point A to point B, can search for your favorite coffee shop that happens to be in close proximity to you. you know, those are fairly basic spatial searches that can be influenced pretty heavily by the underlying quality of the data that, that's driving those applications. Well, most definitely. In order for you able to figure out how to get from point A to point B, we want to make sure that we have data that accurately pinpoints where point A and point B are. But it also makes me think of how quality can impact the calculations performed on that data. It makes me think of edit distance functions for string comparisons, when two strings are compared to see how much of a distance is between them in terms of evaluating whether or not they represent the same text string. But a distance function from a spatial perspective would be how far away is one point from another. But when you have to factor in things like driving directions, so I might actually be closer to an ATM that's actually further away from me because of the driving route that I would have to take. So when it comes to applications of spatial search, there's a very different context to saying that one data point is close to another data point. Absolutely, and you bring up an interesting point because there are a number of capabilities or technologies that I've seen that will use kind of a as-the-crow-flies type of algorithm in order to find something that's closest to you. And to your point, in that scenario, it's not necessarily based on the road network or maybe the current conditions on that road network, so it'll find based on some type of radial analysis the, the closest location to you. And for certain types of applications, that might be perfectly suited. Slightly more advanced options are when they actually do incorporate both the road network and, again, possibly the conditions on the roads to find that location that is physically closest to you by straight line distance because of things like maybe a road that doesn't actually connect those two points or possibly a body of water, for example, that's in between you and that other object that is not the closest to you based on, again, the road network. So there are capabilities out there to find the closest based on the actual conditions of how you might route yourself from one point to another. The other example that came to mind is that I used to work in downtown Boston. And if you were driving or walking, what was considered closest would be tremendously different because you had one-way streets or with construction, you wouldn't be able to get to a certain place by car. But if you were walking, you could get there very easily. And sometimes I've seen some early applications of trying to provide walking directions have the funny thing where the dotted line goes across a river. 
Am I supposed to swim across the river? <laughs> Technically, I guess it did swim across the river. I could get there faster than walking around the river. Would that be something you would consider to be a data quality issue from spatial data's perspective of not understanding how to interpret an obstacle, whether that's a one-way street or a body of water that you couldn't drive or walk across? <laughs> Absolutely, that would be an underlying issue with the quality of the data that's driving that particular routing technology where it doesn't necessarily understand that there is an impediment of some sort that prevents you from taking that particular path. And that brings us to kind of an interesting point where there's many different types of topological errors that can be created within the underlying data that can cause some of these types of anomalies. You could have you know, duplicate lines or points within your underlying spatial database or flaws in the underlying polygons that represent the real world digitally within inside the computer or an over or an undershoot. So if you think of an undershoot as two roads that don't necessarily connect, we know in the real world they, they actually intersect. But within the underlying database, there's a gap between those two roads. So it looks like there are two one-way streets. So those types of underlying data issues, which if you're dealing with a data set that represents an entire state or an entire country or an entire continent, it's difficult for an individual to spot those types of anomalies, and that's where you typically have some commercial products in the market that can scan through, if you will, and identify those types of anomalies and then fix them so that you don't have issues like that in the ultimate application that you're delivering to your customer or consumer. Sometimes driving directions get you to a certain point, no pun intended, and then it's your destination is 500 yards beyond the end of the directions, as if you've hit the edge of their map. I think a lot of times people who don't work in the, in the GIS space oversimplify how difficult it is to draw an accurate map. Uh, is that incomplete in terms of data quality of missing data that prevents the, in that case, again, driving application from being able to give you complete direction? It can be. There could be a, a number of things that, that cause that. But the first is sometimes it's how accurate your initial geocoding is or identifying the points where you are presently and your destination, how accurately you can define that because technologies don't always act the same. They're not consistent. Some are more precise than others. So the more accurate your starting and ending points are, you have a better chance of being able to have a more successful routing experience. But to your point, even assuming you have accurate starting and ending points, there is quite a bit of the capability that's tied into how accurate the underlying street network data is. And so some of it could be issues, like I mentioned just a moment ago, where there are anomalies in the database. Another potential problem could be maybe the underlying database is technically accurate, but it's a bit aged. Maybe there's been a brand new development. So at one point in time, there was a dead-end road that the database was aware of. But since the last time it was updated, maybe a whole new development, and now that dead-end road actually allows you to pass through. So the routing software, if it was using old data, couldn't have routed you around this neighborhood, which I think many of us have experienced. But in reality, you could have passed right through there and, and had a much more efficient route. So just to quickly summarize, I would say that you have to start with accurate starting and ending points through geocoding. There is concerns around how accurate the underlying data is and then how fresh the data is. Does it have the most common or most recent information in the data? I think another thing that people bring up, maybe oversimplifying the point aspect of spatial data, is mobile devices are equipped with a GPS system. 
So people think, well, it has a GPS tracking feature so we can actually pinpoint exactly where someone's phone is. And the way that most phone GPS systems work is they actually don't provide an exact location, but instead triangulate a signal between the nearby cell towers to provide a general location to begin locating something like a lost cell phone. So how accurate can a GPS system be? Well, it's interesting because as the phones have evolved, so has the accuracy that they're able to supply. You're right in that when you're using a GPS system, typically you're using multiple locations based off of the various cell towers that they're triangulating. When your phone is typically inside and if you've joined a wireless network, many organizations are now through their networking providers are capturing Wi-Fi locations that are pretty accurate. So generally speaking, and I'm not in that segment of the space, but they can be pretty accurate to about, let's say, a two or three meter area. So the point is those locations are increasingly getting more and more accurate, but you do see examples where in that scenario what you would be doing is reverse geocoding. So take going from that coordinate pair to an address location or approximate address of where that particular device is located at that moment in time. I remember seeing an example, a state government who was trying to identify where crimes were happening within their state, and the net of it was a high percentage of the crime appeared to be happening in one particular city within their state. And you can imagine where resources might be redeployed to that city. There could be individuals who you know, get fired because crime seems to be skyrocketing. And the, the reality was that because their underlying geocoding technology was not very accurate and the underlying data within that they were capturing in their systems had many flaws in it, it was misreporting essentially 70% of the crime within that one city versus being adequately spread across the state where it actually had occurred. So there are many incidences like that that you can spot across the globe where a combination of inaccurate data capture, whether it's through geocodes or, or through reverse geocoding, and or flaws in the way in which data is managed within their systems and you know, anomalies like we talked about a bit earlier where sometimes when you have flaws in polygon data representing buildings and cities and streets, et cetera, when you have flaws and you try to do analysis, sometimes that will then cause kind of errors within the system because it can't adequately capture where that location actually represents. So pretty much everything else is accurate, but if you have flawed spatial data, it makes it hard for the system to do the analysis that is intended to be done. You're listening to OCDQ Radio, a vendor-neutral podcast about data quality and its related disciplines from the Obsessive Compulsive Data Quality blog produced by Jim Harris. Visit ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast to find ways to subscribe to OCDQ Radio and get links to the blog post summaries of every episode. You'll also find ways to contact me, Jim Harris, if you're interested in being a guest on the show or if you would like to discuss sponsorship opportunities. So be sure to visit ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast for more information about OCDQ Radio. And now, back to the show. On this episode of OCDQ Radio, we're discussing spatial data quality with special guest Clarence Hemfield, the Director of Global Product Strategy for Enterprise Location Intelligence for Pitney Bowes Software. We began our discussion by identifying the three types of spatial data, points, lines, and polygons. So far, our discussion has focused on points, Clarence, can you provide us with some examples of lines and polygons? 
there are many different types of lines. The most basic line that you're, you're likely going to deal with in, in business applications tend to be around streets and street segments. Most people are familiar with be a survey that was done of the home that they live in. So you could think of that object as a parcel boundary, so as one type of polygon. And then picture the road that runs out in front of your house as a line segment. In terms of data quality issues that could happen with the way that those lines get drawn, I've heard a lot about people baiting where property lines fall in terms of when someone wants to, say, build an extension on their house and then they find out that part of their backyard is actually owned by their neighbor because there was a mistake made in how the property lines were drawn. Is that a good example of a quality issue with line and polygon data? Yes, that is probably a scenario where some surveyor who came out possibly many years ago captured the data incorrectly. And again, it could be through some negligence on that individual's case or maybe equipment that wasn't properly calibrated. One area that I see that's loosely related to what you were just asking um, that I come across a little more frequently is this idea of slivers in between two polygons. If you can kind of picture, many of us have dealt with puzzle pieces. So, you know, typically when you set the two puzzle pieces together properly, there's, there's no space in between the two of them. Occasionally in the spatial data that exists within our databases, you can have a scenario where you pull the puzzle piece out just slightly and there's a little gap now between those two pieces. And there's many areas where that can be a problem, but one that comes up frequently for me in, in my business is in the insurance space, particularly in, in property and casualty where insurers have been in ways on kind of the forefront of utilizing spatial information as a significant piece of their business. So when they're considering whether or not to offer you or me insurance on our home, they're doing a whole series of spatial calculations behind the scenes based on the address that you gave them for your property. So as they're looking at homes on either side or whether or not you have, let's say, a stream that runs behind your house and they want to identify whether or not your home or some portion of your property is in a flood zone, it's really important to have very accurate placement of those polygons so that they can have a proper calculation of the risk that your home presents to them because ultimately that's going to be reflected in the price that they either offer you or the case that they may even say, you know what, your home presents too much risk for us and they may not offer you a policy at all. Issues like that, similar to what you just described, have a distinct business impact, particularly for organizations that utilize this information as part of their decision-making process. Location intelligence could probably best be described as the application of location data to a particular business decision. Now, just with any type of data-driven decision, the context of that decision is going to frame the data that is used to support that decision. So, for example, when overlaying of different types of geography, like you have postal geography is largely about the post office, at least in the United States, being able to efficiently deliver mail. Then you may have laid on top of that a jurisdictional geography in terms of tax jurisdiction of where the line between counties is drawn. Or how the geography of a congressional district is drawn to determine representation in the U.S. House of Representatives. And those obviously don't always line up exactly the same because their geography is being drawn for different purposes. So is there a, a translation quality issue between using a set of lines and polygons drawn for one purpose that doesn't necessarily map unintended to another use? Yes, there absolutely could be. 
So it's really important to understand the type of spatial information you need for your particular business purpose. You're hitting on a very fascinating point in that you can be quickly overcome by the level of granularity that can exist within spatial information, and not all of it is useful for your particular purpose. So one of the first things you want to do is make sure that you actually have the proper spatial data that supports your particular use case. And then understand what level of scale do you actually need to utilize it. Because one of the things that you can notice is as you start to zoom in on these things, and I actually like your example, because most people can kind of picture, even if they're not very familiar with this type of data, we've all seen countless representations of the United States. And that whole continental U.S., for example, could be one representation of a very large polygon. Then as you start to zoom in, you look at the individual states and then with the counties within those states, et cetera. As you start to zoom in, you could, on a very granular scale, spot some anomalies in between some of the polygons. But whether or not you need that level of granularity, if there are some flaws within the data, it may not be useful to you based on your use case where it's more important for you to know whether or not a customer is within a specific state or not. But if your use case requires knowing the specific congressional boundary and that data is flawed, then of course that would provide issues for the analysis that you're attempting to do. So on one hand, it's really important to have the proper data that supports your use case. If you actually do need to move between various levels of granularity, then there's ways through layering that you can have those show up only when those layers are actually required. If you do need that most granular level of detail, it's very difficult if you can kind of picture in your mind the congressional districts for the entire U.S., it's difficult for an individual to go through each of those individual areas and spot potential flaws. And that's typically where software applications that can spot those things systematically and then correct them would come in and address those types of things that a human just couldn't do. Geography is probably the easiest example of polygon data for people to imagine in terms of geography of countries, states, counties, and the like. But is there another category of polygon data that you can provide examples of? Polygons could represent a number of different objects in space. It could be trees, park benches, it could be ATMs, buildings, properties. Pretty much any three-dimensional object can be represented by a polygon. I guess I was oversimplifying my mental image of a polygon. I think some people, again, who don't work in the GIS space, like myself, probably think that, well, the data probably doesn't change very much. I mean, once you figure out where the postal address is or where a particular building is, that's going to be relatively static. But there are polygons like trees, for example, which are going to grow and going to change their location. There could be shifts in a house's polygon based on settling or an earthquake. So polygon applications in terms of why would people be concerned about, say, the polygon locations of trees? Maybe that's not a good example. It depends on your use case. If you're in an agency focused on forestry or deforestation, you would be very interested in types of trees, how often they're being cut down, are they being replanted? If you're in agriculture and so farming is your business, you're capturing information about your plots of land, the types of soil that might be on that particular property, the condition of the soil, maybe the crops that you have growing on it. 
But if you're in the insurance space and your primary business is insuring homes, you're probably not as concerned about that, except for as those types of features might serve as barriers for things like flood zones or high wind areas or places where there are hurricanes. I think of some of my friends and colleagues, for example, that live in southern Virginia in an area that tends to get hit by some of the hurricanes that come up the coast. If you're an insurance company and you know that individual lives in an area that has very tall, very old trees, that is going to have an impact on the insurance you provide to that individual or the cost that you charge for it because of the likelihood that one of those 200-year-old trees falls on their home the next hurricane that comes through. From a data quality perspective, I can't help but think about the complications of accuracy with polygon data. I can imagine how to accurately determine a point or accurately determine a line, but determining the accuracy of, for example, polygons that represent the trees and their height and their distances between buildings makes it seem to me that determining the accuracy of a polygon is a far more complex and or less precise process than determining the accuracy of a point like a GPS coordinate or a line like a street and a postal address. You're right to a certain degree. So it it goes back to your use case again. And and so depending on your use case, you may not be as concerned with precise heights and and maybe even distance. You just may want to capture the fact that there are trees abutting a particular property. Or depending on your use case, you might be very interested. So you may actually send individuals out to capture information on exactly where they're located, how far they apart, what's their height, possibly what kind of tree they are, that type of information. Depending on the organization and their use case, there's ways to get access to that type of data. There are plenty of commercial organizations that supply data about building footprints, let's say as one example, or satellite imagery for entire swaths of of the country and the world that can provide you with some of this information. So there's various levels of data depending upon what your particular use case is that you can either can go gather yourself if, if it's required or you can actually acquire through a third party. You're listening to OCDQ Radio, a vendor-neutral podcast about data quality and its related disciplines from the Obsessive Compulsive Data Quality blog produced by Jim Harris. Visit ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast to find ways to subscribe to OCDQ Radio and get links to the blog post summaries of every episode. You'll also find ways to contact me, Jim Harris, if you're interested in being a guest on the show or if you would like to discuss sponsorship opportunities. So be sure to visit ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast for more information about OCDQ Radio. And now, back to the show. On this episode of OCDQ Radio, we're discussing spatial data quality with special guest Clarence Hempfield, the Director of Global Product Strategy for Enterprise Location Intelligence for Pitney Bowes Software. Over the course of the last 10 years or so, it seems like the world of spatial data has had a rebirth thanks to the explosion of mobile technology because it used to be that people might look at a map before they were going to go drive someplace or walk someplace just to get a general idea of where they were going. But now having tablets and mobile phones, see a lot more people looking to use things like augmented reality was a big buzzword last year in terms of being able to point your mobile phone or your tablet down a street and then have it be able to overlay the photo with 
it. Here's a pizza place that got three stars, or you know, here's a coffee shop where a lot of people are checking in on Foursquare or Yelp reviews for restaurants nearby. So the idea that we're now combining more types of data with spatial data for a richer location experience has maybe made more people interested in spatial data and also made more people aware of when it's not accurate. Has that been your perspective as well, Clarence? Yeah, I've seen applications like that and others that have put pressure on businesses, particularly individuals, again, traditionally in kind of the IT organization, that work with the types of technologies that you tend to cover a little more frequently in some of your podcasts now being kind of forced or have grown, maybe a more positive way of putting it, towards having to support spatial applications for their business. Because, you know, us as consumers, you know, we have experience with some of these applications and we turn around either to our organizations that we work for and we want to find applications that can better enable us to do our jobs. Or as consumers, we talk to the companies that we do business with it. We want them to provide us with greater tools that we've seen available for download in some cases freely. So that has put a lot of pressure on individuals who traditionally haven't worked in the GIS space to then be able to build easily and quickly as possible these applications that can support their internal users as well as their external customers. And I think there's a lot of business applications to help companies sell their products and services by being able to have an understanding of where their customers happen to be located or maybe even finding out a good location for a new store based on where people are traveling or the foot traffic within a particular city. And of course, a more location-aware consumer experience does have value for us as consumers, as well as a safety value in regards to GPS-enabled 911 services for emergency law enforcement or medical assistance. But on the privacy implication side of things, there's also a little bit of creepiness factor that even if you don't want to reveal your location for tracking purposes, it's becoming harder and harder to not reveal. Like even though someone like me who's very concerned about clearing cookies off of my browser and not giving away too much personally identifiable information, Google can still target me with local ads because they know that my internet service provider is in Iowa. So they know that I'm at least in the state of Iowa when I connect to my local ISP or if I'm using the Verizon network on my mobile phone, they can triangulate my location based on what cell towers I'm near. And to a certain extent, that's a convenience when I want to find the nearest Starbucks, but it's a privacy concern when I don't want my location to be known. So has this opened up a new, I don't want to call it a surveillance culture, but a new concern about people and businesses being able to figure out where you are, whether or not you want them to? You bring up an interesting point because I think that there was kind of this rush to go out and support a bunch of location-based applications, at least initially amongst some, without a lot of thought given to that creepiness factor. Because many organizations were just kind of hell-bent on delivering location-based apps, particularly in the marketing space, where they wanted to capitalize on some of the success that Google has had through search where they wanted to provide location-based advertisements to you. And there's still quite a bit of work there. And so some of it comes back to you kind of alluded to it. If it's not relevant to you at that moment in time and it doesn't really speak to the things that you're really interested in, it's really easy to turn somebody off whether or not you've actually crept into that creepiness factor, as you put it. But then on top of that, you have many countries around the world and in some cases even within individual states or, or provinces there can be different levels of security that they require for their citizens. 
So you can't, if you're a, a multinational organization, assume that the privacy laws are the same in the U.S. as it is globally because many countries actually have various levels of privacy laws. But then on top of that, there's a tiny bit of difference, or maybe arguably a, a great deal of difference depending upon the generation. Generally speaking, the slightly younger generation than us, some analyst firms have referred to them as digital natives. They live their lives online. They're, they tend to be less concerned about letting you know kind of precisely where they are. And they tend to capitalize pretty heavily off of location-based apps and things of that nature. Whereas the generation that's slightly older than us is a little more fearful of that level of access. And we're generally in the middle. We're kind of half in, half out. So it, it depends on your user in certain ways. It depends on the privacy laws. But it also has to be very relevant. But you know, there are ways that organizations can deliver the applications, ask for permission, give people the ability to identify when they do want to transmit their location and when they don't. And I think it's really critical for those organizations to also be pretty transparent in, here's how I'm going to use this information. And if you do those sorts of things, then I, I think you kind of eliminate or at least drastically lessen the creepiness factor. This has been a very enlightening discussion, Clarence, but I know that there have been many aspects of spatial data quality and enterprise location intelligence that we didn't have time to get to. So in closing, I humbly offer you this soapbox to share your parting thoughts. Fantastic. I would really focus people on you know, treating spatial data in many ways very much like the other types of data that they manage. Really be focused on the quality, but the quality in relation to your underlying application or use case. There are tools and technologies that can allow you to do some very detailed inspection of items like points, lines, and polygons that we've talked about, but you know, that investment might not be necessary depending upon the use case that you have. As you start to build these types of applications, it's also really important to understand what is your attempt to accomplish. If it's something that's more customer-focused, meaning your end customer, what are the types of privacy settings that you have in place to help protect their information? How are you planning on sharing that information if you do? What types of applications, whether or not it's on the cloud or something that a technology that you're running internally, consider that angle. But most importantly, as particularly non-GIS experts begin to build these types of applications, there's ways in which you can do it quickly and easily while managing the underlying quality of the data that is fit to your overall use case. It doesn't have to be as intimidating as it might seem as GIS begins to merge with the broader IT organization. The spatial data landscape can be as vast as the space that the data is trying to represent, and depending upon what level you're zooming in or out of will vary based on your use case, but we've had an excellent opportunity to zoom in and out of various levels of spatial data quality, and for that, we thank our special guest, Clarence Hempfield, the Director of Global Product Strategy for Enterprise Location Intelligence for Pitney Bowes Software. Clarence, thank you very much for joining us on OCDQ Radio. Thank you very much, Jim. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to OCDQ Radio. Go to ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast, where you can find links to the blog post summaries of every episode, ways to subscribe to OCDQ Radio via iTunes and a non-iTunes RSS feed, and a link to listen to OCDQ Radio on your mobile device with Stitcher Smart Radio. And you will find ways to contact me, Jim Harris, via Twitter, LinkedIn, and email. 
so be sure to visit ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening to OCDQ Radio. And until next time, may the data quality be with you always.